I, like, I don't know how to describe it, but it almost felt like something in my mind just broke. Something was just, like, I was done. I actually felt it in my head, like, just snap. I snapped. Mental health and addiction are largely misunderstood. We often struggle in silence, but there is hope for a better life. I'm Trevor Steinhauser, and this is Stigmatized. Hey, everybody. Today I have Marty Williams in the studio, who is the operations coordinator for the medical group at Mercy Health in Cincinnati. Thanks for being here. Uh, thanks. Thank you, Trevor, for having me. It's, a, it's an honor and a pleasure. So let's first talk about what you, the work that you've done at Mercy uh, in and around behavioral health. Uh, I know uh, primary care integration and, and some other things w- which are really interesting uh, in the world of behavioral health these days. So I'd be interested to find out kind of what, what your work and professional career has been up to this point. Absolutely. Uh, I actually started with Mercy Health as a, a student uh, at Xavier University. So my my residency for my master's program uh, kind of led me to Mercy Health and to uh, the medical group there. And uh, as part of that residency experience, my master's project to like get my degree in health services administration was to integrate uh, psychologists, uh, psychiatrists, and uh, social workers into primary care offices uh, to provide uh, a higher level of access to patients that have behavioral health concerns. Now, was that a project you, uh, a topic you wanted to do, or is that what you were presented with? Well, a little bit of both. Okay. (laughs) Um, I did try to kind of steer my career in that direction, but it was also kind of the opportunity there at the time. Uh, So I have a psychology uh, degree from from Xavier for undergraduate. Um, and behavioral health is always something I had a, a, an interest in. And so when that opportunity presented itself, uh, I was uh, eager to jump on it. Yeah. Uh, so primary care traditionally has not been in the mainstream vernacular of mental health, mm-hmm. which I was talking to somebody recently where when you ask somebody, where should I go for care? Mm-hmm. You should be able to ask your primary care doctor that, whether that is addiction or a behavioral health concern. But it re- oftentimes has not been that way, at least f- the way I've experienced it. Yeah, absolutely. So not all primary care physicians and uh, advanced uh, practice providers are comfortable with the topic necessarily, but uh, it is very commonly seen in primary care. I think I saw um, a statistic the other day, I think 25% of all primary care visits uh, actually have to do with mental health concerns. So uh, if you're a primary care doctor, you're very familiar with the topic. Uh, whether you're comfortable with it might be a different uh, different question. And that's where having those behavioral health consultants embedded in the primary care offices uh, really gave those primary care uh, providers an advantage and a resource to go to if they, if they weren't comfortable. And you think it's uncomfortability with like stigma? Or do you think it is uh, the, that's not what they want to be doing or, or what? Uh, it's going to vary by by the individual, but I think a, a common theme that I saw, I actually had a, a provider in Toledo tell me that this is a medical office, not a mental health office. So sometimes it can be that kind of stigma. Sometimes it's, you know, provider desire. They don't uh, necessarily have a lot of training in that arena uh, when they're going through medical school. And so I, I, I think that uh, kind of that, that combination of things uh, leads to... Uh, uh, maybe not the the best experience for for some folks. Okay, all right. So when you rolled this out, your project out, or however it you know kind of uh, progressed, what did you see with this integration? Was it a new idea at the time that Mercy wanted to touch on, or yeah, not necessarily a new idea. My understanding of the history is that this was. Uh, an initiative with managed care, like in the '90s, that um, maybe didn't take off when managed care started to not get uh, pushed as much, and 
um, if you're not aware, like managed care is just the concept of, um, you know, for a, for a, uh, for a provider, you'll get paid like a flat rate to take care of a patient as opposed to getting like a certain amount of money per visit. So uh, behavioral health integration often gets considered when uh, when thinking about managed care structures from insurance companies because uh, patients with mental health concerns and medical concerns just are, are so much more expensive from a insurance standpoint than uh, than a patient with just one or the other. So how did it go? I mean, it went it, oh it went I mean well okay. um, so. We started with a, a pilot project in Cincinnati where we uh, hired two psychiatrists and uh, four psychologists. Um, and that was kind of the pilot that I managed when I was a, a student and a, a practice manager after that. Um, based on the success of that pilot, uh, we then rolled that program out beyond Cincinnati to, uh, to our other uh, markets that we service, uh, Toledo, Lorraine. Lima, Youngstown, Paducah, Kentucky. Uh, so, uh, so it expanded, and and the program has done well. We still have, I believe, somewhere in the ballpark of thirty to forty providers hired, integrated in primary care offices across Ohio and Kentucky. So, this kind of gives that primary care doc a liaison or somebody to help answer those questions. It's a team member as opposed to them having to potentially know right. all of this info. Has that been well-received? It varies by office exactly how well it goes, of course. It's very diplomatic. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, really the concept is when we have, you know, say a psychologist at an office, if a patient comes in and has a mental health concern or uh, even if they don't have a mental health concern, but maybe there's a, a behavioral concern, they're having diabetes, they're having trouble managing, they're not able to keep their medications straight, things like that. Um, what, what having the mental health provider on site enables you to do is uh, have a consult there in real time with someone. Um, uh, usually that's a briefer consult. So a lot of times those those meetings are, are more in like the 20 to 30 minute range instead of uh, maybe a 50, 50 minute therapeutic hour you might experience with a community provider. Um, but uh, yes, uh, it's just a higher level of access, being able to bring someone in the room who's on site. Uh, there's much more comfortability with the provider, you know, because they have a, a working relationship with uh, with that mental health provider as opposed to maybe someone in the community. And then uh, lastly, I've just mentioned, I think somewhere around 2% of referrals to mental health in the community actually get fulfilled. Um, much more success when you have the primary care provider right there in the office. And I think it's, you know, it's good for business, I would think, because, I mean, a one-stop shop, not to cheapen it at all, but I'm just going to, I'm going to give you my experience and how I think this would have helped my situation. So 10 years ago, when I was on my lifelong journey of figuring out my my mental health, uh, ADD, anxiety, depression, I was going to an in, internal medicine office. Mm -hmm. And so they would go and they would work on my ankle or work on my back, but they were also slinging me psych meds. And in hindsight, this was a disaster. Because I would go in there and inquire. I just remember this one time. Uh, my mom was taking, uh, we both take uh, anti-anxiety medication. And she had started a new medication. And I merely inquired. I said, hey, my mom started this new stuff, X. What do you know about it? And it was, hey, you want to try it? You know, wrote the script. No tapering, no titration, nothing. Yeah. And I subsequently that medication that I got on was the, the wrong stuff for me. And had I been in the care of that doctor when I got off of it, it would have killed me. Now it's extreme case. My point is, I think that would have helped having a person there. I'm assuming there wasn't, I can, I guarantee that there wasn't, but having that's just a feather in your arrow in your quiver you know that's just a way to be more diligent that being able to lean on that that person 
mm-hmm. and bring them into the room right. would have been a better, you know, uh, offering. And I, you know, I, I may still be there today, but I just, I think that it's common sense to have a team around you uh, when you're offering a different set of care, you know, multiple things to, to have that support. Right. And I would say within the the medical world, like it's not uncommon to have maybe a cardiologist come through your office, uh, you know, maybe once a month or once every couple of weeks, um, other specialties integrate into primary care as well. But I think the point is behavioral health, mental health. It's so prevalent in that primary care space that you can really justify having a, a professional there uh, full-time or, you know, at least, you know, two or three full days a week kind of deal. So um, do your appointments, you know, structure them that way, but because you're right. I mean, especially with kids and a lot of pediatric mental health mm-hmm. and, and counseling and uh, well, that's, I mean, I, you rolled it out throughout the system or at least in, in parts of it. Mm-hmm. And it's continuing to do well? Continue to do well, continuing to grow. Um, uh, psychologists and social workers are are easier for us to recruit. I think a challenge for us would be uh, psychiatry. There's just not that many psychiatrists in the world, in the country. Um, so uh, with the psychiatrists, uh, we did start with embedding them physically in offices. And I believe some still are. Uh, however, uh, an even better model for that is really to just have a more of a consultative service um, where uh, you kind of have someone at a centralized place be able to consult with the primary care providers on demand across different, uh, you know, different geographies, which I think kind of spoke to your point. Having a psychiatrist, what they're able to do is really give medic- uh, recommendations on uh, medications and, uh, you know, how to do that titration Um you know, how, how to build them up, how to take them down uh, when you have different medications. So um, so I think that might have helped in, in your case. But I, I will just know that it is a challenge uh, just as far as like a, a shortage of psychiatry providers from a medical group perspective. It's hard to find personnel. Yeah. And why do you think that is? Is that still today that there's a lack of people going into the field? Lack of people going into the field. Um, I... I don't remember exactly what it is. Somewhere around 50% of psychiatrists are above the age of 55. So um, so that shortage of psychiatry is only becoming exasperated as psychiatrists retire. I think the the average rate of, you know, I think 25% or so of, uh, of all physicians are above that age. So it's definitely like more acutely felt in the psychiatry as far as providers leaving the field. And then as far as new providers coming in, um, Certainly, if you are a medical student and you're determining what, where you want to go, there, there's more financially lucrative opportunities in different specialties. Um, and you can take someone with, with you know, really just a passion for the field to, to really go into uh, that route. So there are there are jobs that are being unfilled because, or there, another way of saying it, there's a shortage mm-hmm. strictly because there's not anybody doing it. They're, they're not. The interest isn't there, which shock is not the right word, but surprises me just because it's such a prevalent thing that's going on in the world today is uh, behavioral health concerns and the need for people to uh, be on medication or have uh, resources around their mental health. So, I mean, the job security is there, but I guess it's not as sexy or like you said, high paying is other specialties, but. And also the demand is just so high, right? Like think about trying to integrate those sorts of resources, you know, across every medical office, like that can create a lot of positions. So maybe that, you know, if that demand wasn't there in the past, but now it is have the medical schools kind of adopted their, um, I don't know, the advice that they give to, to new providers related to that. I've heard some people talk about the stress of that job. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think it's a lot of people, uh, you know, being a therapist or being in the field of behavioral health, you've got to play therapist or, you know, you've got to 
listen to people and have a good bedside manner and uh, you're hearing you know, it's not all tragedy, but a lot of it is, uh, you know, it's emergent issues where, where people are going and you can hear some really bad stuff. I mean, do you think people avoid that as well? The, the whole lifestyle of, of, of having, having to see things that aren't the most pleasant things in the world to see? Yeah, uh, possibly. I, across the medical field, I, like uh, there's a significant amount of attention being given now to provider burnout, like globally, uh, just as far as uh, compassion fatigue is a, is a term that you might see when you, when you read articles. Um, just, uh, it's hard to be a care provider of any stripe. And then especially so in mental health, when you do see some of the worst situations, you know, have people tell you about some of the worst traumas. Uh, no, it's stressful. It can, it can be exhausting. You also, if I can add, sure. you also need to uh, to go into that world, have a certain mindset around objectivity that um, I don't think is uh, maybe common, right? So, uh, you know, when you're when you're working with a client or a patient, and uh, you're hearing about you know the different challenges they have, it can be difficult. Right to not uh, want to give your patient all the answers. You know, that's a that's a very specific skill set, right? As to, as how do you be objective and um, and and actually you know perform a therapy intervention as opposed to when you're in medical practice. Here's the answer. Like I don't really need to think too much more about it. Like there's definitive yeah. answers. Yeah. So right. it's just um, you know there's uh, it, there's a little more simplicity in that, in that nature, I guess. So take us through a little bit more of what provider fatigue is and what it looks like. I mean, the, the term is starting to come a little bit more uh, popular, but, but give us an example of what that would look like. Um, well, with uh, compassion fatigue, uh, you know, it's really related to the concept of work burnout, which isn't unique to uh, the medical field, obviously, but... Um, you know, what it looks like is, you know, a provider who, uh, you know, is seeing patients day in, day out, has a lot of pressures related to productivity, seeing, you know, uh, you know, a high number of patients in a short amount of time. Um, you can become a little jaded, for <laughs> lack of a better term, like, uh, you know, when you do it for, for so long, um, maybe you become a little desensitized to, to, to people's uh, issues and concerns. And, and maybe you uh, have some frustration related to how effective you're able to be in addressing their concerns. Cause it's very difficult to really, you know, in five minutes, you know, help someone out with their anxiety issues or, you know, or maybe they're not taking their medications the way they should. Uh, and you, and you see patients with repetitive problems that uh, you, you may not be able to make a, a difference in. So I think that kind of all rolls up into that. Sure. And, and people have to be their own advocate too. I mean, they have to do the work, right? They have to take the meds. If they take them as scheduled, it, it I, I can't imagine the number of people that are seen that choose to stop just at a whim, and and so I, I can see the frustration that that could, the different scenarios that that, that could happen. I talked to a, a a person in law enforcement, and they talk about first responder fatigue. Mm -hmm. You know, you Narcan somebody, and then they go out and they. Narcan them again the same day and just the frustration and you're, you're, you're trying to almost, you know, put life into somebody that doesn't care about right. it themselves. So I can see that there's frustration and then, you know, first responders are seeing terrible stuff Absolutely. daily and uh, people in behavioral health are hearing things, you know, if, you, if you're, you know. 30 patients a day or whatever. And a lot of it is, uh, like I said before, a lot of it is um, time sensitive and it's either in um, catastrophe mode. So it's um, uh, could be seen as doom and gloom in, in a lot of ways. So, but the fact that uh, organizations like Mercy are, are doing this and piloting programs and the fact that primary care is being integrated with behavioral health is a positive, promising thing because I think it's going to become more more reliant for people to to at least ask their primary care doctor, where can I get 
you know, where can I see somebody? And, and they don't have to have all the answers, but if that team is there right. to provide those answers and come in and, 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 you know, quarterback and, and, you know, kind of tap each other out, it makes for good business in my opinion. Yeah. It, it's, a, it really is all about that team approach. Um, uh, we just need the payment <laughs> methodologies, reimbursement from insurance to kind of catch up with what best practice is. Because, uh, again, it, it's not uh, not cheap for a, a medical group to, to kind of approach that sort of strategy. And if you aren't the insurance payer, like if, if right now if we put uh, those providers in and we're getting reimbursed on a fee-for-service basis, a lot of the savings aren't actually being realized by our organization. It's really being realized by an insurance company. So how do we structure our contracts uh, with with insurance companies so that there's shared incentive for doing work like that on a, from a financial and a business case? Sure. And and getting good care for substance use disorder in, in rehab treatment centers. I mean, if you want to have MDs and, and psychologists and psychiatrists on staff to provide a good 30-day program or whatever it is, it's expensive. Yeah really expensive and when you when there's no reimbursement there that that's the big tug is you know i'm spending 25 to thirty-five thousand dollars for 28 days and i get 1500 bucks back right after fighting with the insurance company for six months yep. you know so that is a, a a a long road ahead but i i would think that all these things are are starting to get a little bit better more attention put on them and we just got to keep throwing the hammer down on the, you know, the powers that be that we need this demographic, behavioral health folks that, that struggle, need assistance, you know, I mean, period. Yep. Okay. So uh, you also have your own personal uh, road with uh, behavioral health and uh, some other know your own kind of road why don't you take us through that sure so uh again i've i've had an interest in behavioral health for a while uh and when i was managing primary care i always thought you know like what is it that's really going on in these visits like uh you know like how can we make a better impact um so recently I got to kind of live through a, a mental health experience and it was uh, very eye-opening for me and kind of gave me some insight into those questions that I had as a manager beforehand as far as like, you know, what is it like to, to be a patient? Uh, so for me, I guess job dissatisfaction really uh, drove uh, some of my uh, problems with, with anxiety and depression. Um for me, it kind of started on, on a drive home um, where I just, you know, after, a, you know, yet again, another frustrating day at work, uh, you know, having too many things to do and don't have time to do them. Um, you know, driving up I-75 in Cincinnati and getting cut off, right, by, by someone, I just totally lost it. Like just yelling at them from my car, you know, F you, like, you know, like, what do you think gives you the right, like just all this, all this stuff, like just such a pure rush of anger that I just like never experienced before. And in that moment, I like, I don't know how to describe it, but I almost felt like something in my mind just, just broke. Like some, something was just like, I was done. And I don't know how to describe it, but it's almost like I, I actually felt it in my head. Like just snap. I snapped. And, um, it's like an out of body type thing. I mean, it, it's, I a, it's very intense when you've never felt it before. For me, it was like in that moment, I, I just, at that point I couldn't process information anymore. Like, uh, so I'm there like driving a seven miles per hour on highway. Right. And like cars are, are just going back and forth, going back and forth past me and, um, and all I can do is like keep my hands on the steering wheel and just like just keep going straight because I couldn't process information to change a lane kind of thing. Like I just I couldn't process information. My, my mind was that exhausted. Um, so I went like three or four exits past where I ought to have been, was able to collect myself, went home. 
Um, the plan was to go to, to Myrtle Beach on vacation like the next day. Um, and I just came home and told my wife, just crying, just like, I, I can't do this anymore. I had to quit my job. Like, I have to. I cannot keep going like this. And, you know, I talked with my wife. She's like, you know, well, you know, like, we're going on vacation. You need a break. Like, it'll all be better, <laughs> you know, when you get back. Like, just, you know, just calm down. Um, so, you know, I went with my family to Myrtle Beach. And uh, it did not get better. <laughs> I really? had multiple panic attacks just look, looking out of the at the beach. Which, you know, for me, it was just like, you know, just like, your breath, your breathing gets faster. You start sweating. Like you're just, you're just panicked. Right. Um, but this is like the calmest environment. So I'm like, something's wrong. Like this isn't, this isn't right. Um, uh, yeah, my, my didn't understand that as depression at the time. I knew it was anxious. Um, but, uh, towards the end of that trip, when I'm anticipating going back to work, like my, my depression was so bad that I, I stopped identifying myself in photos. Like we're taking family photos, right. On a family vacation and they're showing photos and I don't know who that guy is. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Like, and like part of me knew it was me, but there was a part of me that doesn't. And that is like the most bizarre thing. And I cannot explain it to you if you haven't experienced it. Um, but it's just like, there's this part of you that knows, but this part of you is just rejecting the entire idea of your own identity. Like I'm is having this an identity like a dissociative crisis. Yeah. Type just, it was just a, a break. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I still had a concept of self, but it was, it was very strained, right? It was being rejected like at a physiological basis. Very strange. Um, but uh, we came back from vacation um, and driving into work that Monday. I didn't have any concept of where I was uh, at one point in the drive. Like I just, I didn't, I didn't know. Dissociation, right? Um, I went into work and I'm, you know, trying to, uh, you know, do all these tasks assigned to me and I can't do them. And there's a, a cycle that I identified that I think really describes work burnout pretty well, or at least anxiety. Um, for me, it's like I would start on one task. I'd get some progress. Then I'd have to go to another task. I'd get some progress, have to go to another task over and over and over to the and point where- you just left hold a bag of shit. I yeah. Mean, I, I'm not getting anything done. I'm getting everything half started. Right. Um, which isn't, isn't going to fly (laughs) in the workplace. Mm -hmm. Um, So I ended up telling, you know, my manager that, and yeah. And he told me, he told me that one, I was depressed, which I, again, didn't recognize that in myself at that point. It's just, and maybe you can listen to this and understand that maybe there's some depression going on, but you know, from my perspective, like I have a great wife, I have great friends. Uh, I have a, a good paying job. There, there's just no reason that I can come up with why I'd be unhappy. Well, you're banging your head against, I mean, how, how long were you unhappy at work? About, um, at that point, probably about a year and a half. It's a long time. Yeah. You know, to be banging your head against the wall and being unfulfilled or stressed out and you know, who knows the crazy thing is that who knows why it happens. Right. E- even though that is definitely a catalyst for mm-hmm. sure, you know, but for it to happen like that, that's wow. So, you know, so he, so my, my manager told me basically, can you just, just give me one thing, just focus on one thing today. So if you can get that done, you know, tomorrow will be a new day. I'm like, all right. So I'm able to like get one thing done. Uh, I go home there's like a a door to door salesman that comes around and it's just like clearly a scam. And I give that person like a personal check for what they need. Like with like all my, you know, your account information right on a check. 
my bank account wasn't drained, thank God. But the point was, like, any risky behavior at that point seemed fine. Uh, she, you know, the salesman basically talked about how she was dealing with social anxiety and this was a way for her to get on her feet, single mother, all this stuff. All that stuff was resonating with me. Like, I need to help someone. I need to have some value in right. my life. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, that night, had that experience. My wife's like, you know, like, what's going on with you? I'm like, I don't know. I, I can't explain it. Uh, just to recap, is this that one day back to work? Yeah. Yep. Um, and then in that night, I like trying to relieve my stress. I go downstairs and try to play a video game that I've played like my entire life, well, not my entire life, but you know, have good experience with, and I can't execute the button combinations again. Like my, like my mind is, is just so exhausted. Like I can't process the information at all. And this is a easy game. <laughs> so so the next day I go to work and, uh, and I, I can't, uh, I can't focus on anything. I'm like getting so frustrated. I, I go outside and take a walk. And again, I lose the concept of like, even where I am. And I keep looking up the building and saying, where are you? And then I'm saying back to myself, you're at work. Like, what are you talking about? I don't. I don't get that. <laughs> right. I'm not a psychologist. I right. don't know like all the parts of the brain, but just again, where whatever it was related to, you know, a concept of identity, I totally lost it. My my mind was rejecting the concept that basically that I work there. I'm looking at I look at the Mercy Health sign on on the side of a building, and it's just like where where is this? And it means nothing to you. It just yeah. So. So for vacation and those that, that day or two back, you know, in and out of the confusion, what was your temperament? I mean, were you frustrated and angry or were you just like zapped? Like there was just a, I mean, a wall was up and you were just, you know, like a hallway, you know, mm-hmm. empty and with roaming around. Uh, mostly just panicked and anxious, like just... Not knowing what's going on, obviously confused, frustrated for sure, and just honestly just conf- confusion. Like I was still able to, like I wasn't like a zombie walking around and I wasn't, uh, I don't know. Like at some points that like you would like, be, I'd be my normal self, but again, just, I think just those feelings of panic would just strike constantly about I'm going to lose my job. Once I lose my job, I'm going to lose my wife. Once I lose my wife, you know, I'm going to go back home. My parents won't take me in. Like just this entire. Yes. Progression of doom and gloom of, of, which is the, you know, the the truest form of anxiety. Right. Which feed, you know, then feeds into depression and it's just the chicken little, the sky is falling. Yep. Man, I'm sorry you went through that. That's okay. So how to, how does it progress? So, um, as I'm outside walking around, not knowing where I am, I do have thoughts about jumping off the building and beyond thoughts, like I can visualize it, right? Like I, I can see myself jumping off the building and, uh, you know, I had enough behavioral health training at that point to know that wasn't good. So, um, I'm like, okay, I need to, I need to get some help. I don't, you know, like, I don't know what's going on at this point. So I, I drive to my primary care office. <laughs> um, I am a wreck on the road. I can't believe I didn't hit anyone. Uh, I should have had someone else drive me. Um, but I get there. I see the psychologist who's there in the primary care office. And just, you know, and we've been seeing each other for about a month at that point. And just tell her, you know. Basically say, look, I'm really struggling at work. And she starts to go in on some of the things I've been working on. I'm like, no, look, like <laughs> there's this, this, and this. And so, sorry, you were seeing her as a patient already or, mm-hmm. or part of this? I'd seen her as okay. a patient for okay. a month. I okay. had two sessions with her in advance okay. of this. Um, but I, again, I, I, I tell her, 
you know, about the dissociation, about the suicidal thoughts, about um, not recognizing himself in pictures, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. And she's like, the risky behavior with the salesman. And, and basically she lays it out in, in this way. She says, okay, so you don't trust your own decisions. You uh, are having suicidal thoughts. Like, and you're, you're just constantly fresh. Like, you know, like, what do you want to do? Like, this doesn't sound good. She's like, do you want to go to a hospital? And I'm like, yeah, I, I guess I do. So she ends up, you know, calling uh, basically the police because the police have to escort you from, you know, wherever you are to the... On a welfare call kind of like that? Yeah. Um, right. To the emergency room. So I... I uh, and she, you know, she, she asked, you know, she's like... Uh, basically, I asked her, well, can my wife take me instead? And she says that, yes, that she can. But I saw the look on her face was like, no, she can't. And I knew she was just telling me what I wanted to hear because I know what that protocol has to be. But so I call my wife and tell her, come to primary care office. Like, I need to go to hospital. I need you to drive me. So my wife arrives. And then like two minutes later, police arrive. And so then my wife gets to see me like escorted out of his office by police. Um, just, just highly traumatic for her. I feel like shit, right? Like, what am I doing to my wife? What am I? And then it's, it's all like, what am I doing to other people? Right. Right. When you're you're the one that's struggling. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is also common, which is freaking weird, but yeah. Okay, so so go to the emergency room. Um. You know, and you, you know when you're in emergency room, they like, like it's just such a weird thing. Like you have the gown, they cut the strings off in the back. You know, okay, so was this a, was this a straight up ER at a hosp regular hospital, yeah, or was this a behavioral room, health emergency room at Fairfield Hospital? Okay, yeah, which and is just a regular hospital. I mean, it's not a behavioral. There's health. no psychiatric okay, ward at Fairfield it. Hospital. Okay, got it. All right. So, um, so yeah, so just for evaluation, I'm in the emergency room. And, you know, they, they you know, uh, basically have somebody in there with you the whole time, cut the strings from your gown. If you go to the bathroom, like, they have to watch, like, watch you go, basically. It's just a really dehumanizing process at a point where you're already questioning your humanity. Right. That That's what's just struck out, you know, they take your shoelaces, they right. take your belt. I mean, yeah, it, it is. Yeah. Been there. It's, mm. Um. Anyhow, so my wife meets me at the, the emergency room. She ends up accepting a job while I'm there, which is weird. <laughs> at the yeah, really at the ED. Like she, <laughs> you know, like gets to go to a teaching position she really wanted while I am. So we always joke that, like you know, like my good days and and uh, and her bad days and, and and vice versa. Whenever she has a bad day, you know, I have a good day. Whenever I have a good day, she has a bad day. This was like the most extreme form of that. Sure. And I'm just like questioning too. It's like, you know, all my concerns are related to career. And it's like, here's my wife getting where she needs to go. Like, it's just, it's just a lot to take at that point. Um, anyhow, I do end up getting transferred then to Claremont Hospital, which has a psych ward and spend a night there. Um, that's not a fun experience, <laughs> obviously. Um, uh, and I'd seen like the, the war as far as my position <laughs> at mercy. Right, that's the crazy. Yeah, that's yeah. The, yeah. Um, but just, you know, just get to live it and, uh, yeah, not, not something I'd want to repeat. Um, but I do get discharged the next day. Uh, I, you know, I, when I eventually talked to a psychiatrist about 11 o'clock the next morning, I'm just like, look, I don't, I don't belong here. <laughs> and like, I'm feeling better. Like I, I like, Again, hard to explain. So, so throughout that night, things did start to come around? Yeah. So, so you saw a psychiatrist or a psychologist at some point in those 12 hours or however long you were there? Yeah, I, I, I saw a psychologist at primary care at about noon one day. And the next day, I see a psychiatrist at about 11. Did any of those perpetuate you feeling better because you started to get some explanations? Or was it just a biological, chemical... I'm coming back around type of thing. If you uh, can. Yeah. 
I buy a lot. Like just there's nothing. There was no like therapy intervention applied okay. or whatever. Okay. Um, no, it's just you know just yeah. I can't explain it. Just uh, like for me, like I felt my depression really acutely at certain moments. Like I was I actually ended up being evaluated for bipolar because of how extreme it could be. And you know, one minute I could be normal, and the next minute just really down. Um, I don't have bipolar, by the way. It's just, that's just sometimes how depression works. But, no doubt. Um, <clears throat> anyhow, you know, the, you know, I, I tell my story to the psychiatrist and, you know, I just remember telling her, like, how I feel like I've let everyone down and like this, all this stuff. And she's like, or, and I tell her how, how guilty I feel. Like so much guilt that I can't keep it together. And so she tells me, like, what do you have to be, you know, to feel guilty about? Like, you have chemical reactions going on in your brain that are causing you to feel this way. And so then when she said that, that accelerated it. Like, you know, you asked, like, it's something to pull you out. Like, that that helped me really get stabilized, I think. Though I'd, I'd already been feeling a, a bit better. Um, to, to know that you're not completely going crazy. Right. You know, you've got to have... You've got to get some information or education in your mind to, to from a professional to, to know that there's something else at play here. Yeah. Yeah. So I go into uh, a intensive outpatient uh, unit at Claremont uh, thinking I'm better, quite frankly. Like thinking, well, that was a crazy day. But, you know, I again, I don't have any reason to be this depressed. They've started me with some medications. I think I'm going to get better soon. And I can't tell you how many times in my recovery process, I'm like, I feel like I'm better. It's over. I wanted it to be over so bad. But every time I think it's over, right, you go right back down, like probably within the hour. Um, so uh, I'm doing partial hospitalization. Uh, I have some friends come down the following week. And um, and, and just for the 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 listeners partial hospitalization is what uh, partial hospitalizations when you're basically you spend the majority of your day like at a hospital like you're not actually on the ward you're doing outpatient type services but you're doing them for the entire day okay so you're able to be released to uh, your family's care when you at the end of each day okay. as opposed to actually having to stay okay but um so I so I was an intensive outpatient, and the next week I had another episode where I just got in my mind where that I must have a brain injury. Like that's the explanation of all this. Like my anxiety was was just so advanced that I just went down that road and couldn't let go of it to the point where I was suicidal again. Did it manifest itself in the same way where it was just a break? No, no, just I thought I just couldn't let go of. And my, you know, my father actually had like a brain cyst that he had removed about the same age as what I am today, you know, early thirties kind of thing. Um, so I thought, you know, maybe, you know, maybe there has to be some, you know, genetic component, right? That that's driving this good emergency room, uh, and have them, you know, do a, do a scan. Uh, you know, there's nothing there. And if I can go back just a second, earlier the day when I ended up going to the ED, what really kind of drove uh, drove some of that that thinking was that uh, when I was at Claremont for uh, for services, uh, pro- I got pro- asked probably three or four times, "When am I going to return to work? When am I going to return to work? When are you going back to work?" When I'm at a mercy facility, I'm super depressed. I'm paranoid. Uh, and for me, and that they were asking those questions to fill out paperwork. But again, just the way they were asking them just drove my paranoia to the point where like, oh, they want me to, you know, they're, they're going back to break me kind of thing. Like, you know, like just thoughts that don't make sense, but mm-hmm. there they were. Um, so while I was at Claremont Hospital, I had just like an extreme panic attack. And for this one, it wasn't like, sweaty and breathe like this was like i could feel like every neuron firing in my brain and it felt like ice water going down my spine when it kind of like released like 
there are different ways to experience panic attacks. And that one is awful because I'm just like shaking like uncontrollably like the next two days. Um, so that kind of preempted the, the, uh, you know, going to the emergency room and having those thoughts about must have a brain injury. Cause I couldn't explain that. Like, what is the, like, I've never heard anyone describe a panic attack in that way. It's awful, but that is just a really severe panic attack. Like it's, uh, um, something that I've never experienced again, thank God. Uh, but it's, it's, it's awful. Um, anyhow, uh, you know, through the course of, of therapy, I, and I have recovered. I'm back at my job now, uh, the same job I had when I left. Uh, my coworkers were really good about, uh, you know, my manager specifically, really good about, you know, like gradually adding the workload back on to a point where now I actually have more than I had when I went to the hospital. And I guess the point is, it was never really about the workload. <laughs> Even though it's work burnout, it's really about unchecked anxiety. Like, you can't get anything done when you're constantly afraid. Right. So, so what was, so obviously something was going on if you were seeing this person a couple times before this all went down. I mean, was it, you know what I mean? I mean, if you're, if you're seeing this, if it had a couple sessions before you had the big episode, mm-hmm. obviously you knew there was, there was something amiss. Right. Yeah. Well, like for me, like I got moved into, like I, I was not working behavioral health at this time. I was actually moved from behavioral health to the medical group. And uh, it, it was basically just due to organizational restructuring. But for me, it's like I, I got moved out of where I wanted to be to maybe somewhere I wasn't as passionate about without being asked. And just the entire experience was confusing. And it just, I don't know, made me bitter about work. Like, you know, I don't have any control over my life, right? I don't have any control over what my career is mm-hmm. like, you know, th- those sorts of thoughts, you know, over the course of a year. Right. And it just stews. Right. It just, right. you know, build up into that. But, um, but again, like I was so convinced when I went to the hospital that work did this to me. Like that, like, honestly, like that's the easy way to think about it. It's like, well, you know, uh, my manager's give me too much to, to, to do. And, and again, I just can't stress enough. Like it was that cycle of starting without finishing, not being able to focus that was related to anxiety that once my anxiety was a little more under control, all of a sudden I could focus and I could get those tasks done. Um, and I'm, I'm sure there's people in positions where maybe they are asked to do a, a bit too much, but, um, but again, uh, like for me personally, it was just, it's just shocking to think now, like how certain I was when I went to the hospital that my job was killing me to coming to an understanding now that this was all like, this was related to mental health. Like I'm managing more than I was before. And I don't have to worry about it when I go home. Like when, you know, when I was uh, work burnout for me, what was really the concept that whenever I was at work, all I could think about was what I do when I get home, like just got to get out of the workplace. And then when I got home, all I could think about was why didn't get done was at work. Yeah. And it's just, you're just constantly not in the present. You're constantly in the, like that for is me, the fear of the unknown. Yep. That's anxiety, man. Yep. Straight up. Always, always in the future. Like, uh, what or if, the past. what if, what if, yeah. Yeah. which can cause, you know, things to happen, you know, like what you went through. So how are you feeling now? Feel a lot better. <laughs> Great. Um, recovery process took a while. Um, doesn't stop when you're released from, you know, for me, for from intensive outpatient or whatever. Like, right. it, it, it's been a process. I did a lot of outpatient therapy when I left. Um, probably about three months now where I haven't seen a psychologist and I'm, I'm doing all right. I, I think uh, to me, it was hard to understand, like, well, how would you know when you're doing all right? But at this point, I'm just able to handle stress better. Like, you know, if something will, will happen, like, and of course you still get upset in the moment or whatnot, but 
um, you know, like I, if I could have a bad performance review at work and I would think about it for like the next week, two weeks. Now it's like, if I get some criticism at work, you know, maybe it bothers me for a day. Right. It's just a, a just really duration. So like people with unchecked anxiety, I mean, and, and we'll, we'll wrap it up with what, what do you say to those that may be feeling like the sky is falling at their job and that they're starting to really take a hit mentally? I'd say if you feel like the sky is falling, especially if you feel like you're, you're challenged that work to get your work done. Um, it's definitely worth seeing someone for the advice. Like, you know, uh, like a psychologist can probably tell you how to get things done a little more efficiently or help support you, you know, give you some, an objective viewpoint about whether or not you really are overwhelmed and can help you, uh, deal with those feelings a little more productively. Right. Coping skills. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Coping skills. Right. Um, so I would, I would definitely advise you to see a psychologist. I think if you can do it in primary care, that's a great access point. If you can do it in specialty care, uh, that sometimes is harder to get into, but, um, wherever you can find some help, but right. I think just recognizing it is the most sure. challenging thing. Mm -hmm. And so like for me, like if you're having like thoughts, like for me, I probably told myself I was an idiot or I wasn't good enough or I didn't care about my job or my job is the most important thing, like all these extremes, but really negative self-talk more than anything else. Like you're stupid. Like you couldn't figure that out. If you have a lot of negative self-talk like that, you should see someone. Right. And, and, and the bottom line is have the strength and the belief in yourself that you're worth getting checked out. You know, right. That, that's, that's where the rubber meets the road with stigma and shame and blame and guilt and i cannot let anybody th think or know that i might be crazy or right. what you know what i mean it, that acceptance and, and and being assertive enough to, to take care of yourself and to know that it's okay you, you got to get yourself straightened out and it's just a something that can uh, come and go and be managed perfectly fine no yeah. well hey man uh, I, I appreciate your courage and bravery to, to talk about uh, your story because it, it, that's tough. But I, I know people that are listening, uh, it's going to help somebody because it's it's all too common for to the 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 real world to to get in the way and and wreak some havoc. So uh, thanks for agreeing to come on and, and tell us your story. I appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate you giving me an opportunity. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I want to thank everyone that makes this show possible. Production by Gwen Sound, artwork by Neltner Smallbatch, and photography by John Willis and Lindsay Steinhauser. Please subscribe, rate, and write a review. Visit our website for more information at stigmatizedpodcast.com.